I want to thank you for getting out on a rainy morning to join us today. And I want to thank all of you that join us faithfully online every week. This is not going to be an easy message for me to share. And it may not be an easy message for you to hear. But I think this is a very important message to share and to hear. I'd like you to pray with me, please. So, uh, God, I uh, ask that you give me boldness this morning and also give me clarity. I pray that people will hear my heart, not just my words. And I pray that you would increase among all of us who name the name of Jesus a greater desire to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For Jesus' sake, amen. Several years ago, there was a movie titled Invictus that told the story of Nelson Mandela, the new president of South Africa, making the conscious decision to try to unify the nation by supporting the mostly all-white national rugby team. But that's not the only statement he made. He also chose intentionally to hire some security personnel from former President Clerk's security force, a security force that had a reputation of sometimes being oppressive. The clip I want you to see is when his head of security sees a letter signed by Mandela authorizing such action. So please watch. What's this? Mr. Jason Chabalala. That's me. Am I under arrest? Captain Fader and team reporting for duty, sir. We've been assigned to this office. Here are our orders. Sorry to disturb you, sir. You look agitated, Jason. Well, that's because there are four special branch cops in my office. They say they're the presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by you. Ah, yes, ah, yes. Well, uh, these men are special trained by SAS. They have lots of experience. They protected the clerk. Yes, sir, but it doesn't mean that they have to come... You asked for more men, didn't you? Yes, sir, I asked... Um... When people see me in public, they see my bodyguards. You represent me directly. The Rainbow Nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir. Yes, reconciliation, Jason. Comrade President, not long ago these guys tried to kill us. Maybe even these four guys in my office tried and often succeeded. Yes, I know. Forgiveness starts here too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Please, Jason. Try. It's very rare in the Bible for a long story to get repeated. But that's what happens in the book of Acts. So we're in this series called Unlimited. Studying from chapter 9 through 15 how the early church went from a local movement that only reached one race to a global movement crossing racial and ethnic lines. And the turning point in the story is the Cornelius event. And we saw in chapter 10 last time that in that story there are two conversions. 
There is the conversion of Cornelius, who was a decent and noble man. But his conversion taught us that we are not saved because of our goodness. We are saved because of the goodness of God who offers us in Christ Jesus the gift of forgiveness. But we also saw in chapter 10 the conversion of Peter. Remember, Philip lived in Caesarea. If the goal was just to convert Cornelius, the angel could have sent him across the street. But he went 30 miles away to get Peter because God wanted to do a work on Peter while he was doing a work through Peter. And Peter says, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. And his conversion included the new realization of just how wide and full and great the unlimited reach of the gospel is. But then in chapter 11, Luke turns around and tells the story again. Because there's one more conversion that needs to take place. We've seen the conversion of Cornelius and the conversion of Peter. And today we're going to see the conversion of a church. So starting in verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Isn't it amazing how fast the grapevine works? Especially when the news is controversial. All Peter did is eat one ham sandwich and the next day it is all over the internet. And he shows up in Jerusalem. And he gets criticized. They feel compelled to call Peter out. We're talking Peter. We're talking one of Jesus' most intimate friends. We're talking the man that preached the first gospel sermon. And the text doesn't say that the other apostles joined in the criticism, but they couldn't stop it. That shows you what a huge deal this is. Side note. We should be grateful in the church in our past for men and women who had the courage to challenge tradition, question assumptions, and risk their reputations To remove limits to the mission of God. I'm glad somebody said amen. We should have had more. Because we have been blessed in our history. By men and women. Who were willing to put it all on the line. For the sake of the mission. And Peter did. He didn't respond with a rant. But with a history lesson. So he retells the story. You can read it yourself in the first half of chapter 11. And if you do notice that he makes it very clear that he did not act on his own initiative. At least ten times in the story, he gives credit to God. Hey, I'm not the one that sent the angel to Cornelius. That was God's doing. I'm not the one that asked for a vision. I was just a hungry guy trying to take a nap on a roof, and God three times gave me a vision. I'm not the one that sent the Holy Spirit. I was just preaching my sermon, and God interrupted and baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't make a point to mention what a good man Cornelius was. You know, you know what those Gentiles are like, but there are a few good ones and he's one of the good ones. No, because the issue is not the character of Cornelius. The issue is the agenda of God. 
But I think the church in Jerusalem already knew what God's agenda was. Because let me show you what Luke does. A little later in chapter 11, he goes back in time. He goes back in time to when Stephen was stoned. Verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. See, that was a number of years before Cornelius. Look what they did. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. This had never happened before. It says he's telling them about the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, Cornelius was not the first Gentile to be saved. That had already been happening. The Cornelius controversy is not about salvation. It is about reconciliation. Notice again what they criticized Peter for doing. Look at verse 3 with me. They didn't say, we heard that you preached the gospel to a Gentile. They didn't say, hey, we heard that you baptized a Gentile. No, they said, you entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. See, this was not about who could enter the baptistry. This was about who could come to the table. As I reflected on this text, I was flooded with memories of the church I was raised in. I was a boy. And so I didn't know that we were a sectarian church. I was a boy. I didn't know that we were a legalistic church. I was a boy. But even as a boy, I knew we were a racist church. I knew because we had a bulletin board on the main hall. And on that board, we had Polaroid pictures of the missionary we supported in Africa. They sent back a lot of pictures of him baptizing African people in a river. And we put them up with thumbtacks on our board. This is the same church that called my father who led the visitation ministry in. And the elders told him, if a black family visits our church, you are not to send anyone to their home to ask them to come back. We were fine with black people getting baptized and saved. We just didn't want any. In our house. Now how do you explain that kind of incongruity? It's because you have accepted a false gospel. Uh, an inadequate gospel. A limited gospel that preaches salvation. But stops short of reconciliation. It's a gospel that fails to see that the cross has both vertical and horizontal dimensions. That when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just to make us right with God. It was to make us right with each other. So the church in Jerusalem needed some more conversion. So they could understand that true discipleship means unlimited fellowship. That Jesus is not just building a church where anyone can enter the water. He's building a church where everyone can come to the table. Because the church is God's answer for what has been the world's greatest problem ever since the Tower of Babel. Our national and our racial hatred and division. And God's answer is to do a work through Jesus in people like us. 
who understand the cross doesn't just go up, it goes out. Paul says to the Ephesians church in chapter 2, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Do you see? The cross is not just about salvation. It is about reconciliation. He continues, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death throughout the New Testament. This is called the mystery. This is what God was unveiling. This was what God was revealing. That He was doing a work through Jesus and through Jesus' people that the world had never seen. It was a revolutionary thing. It was a radical thing. As God was bringing Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free together, at one table, welcoming each other. This is God's mission and dream. I hear sometimes Christians say, well, the church just needs to be colorblind. No, it doesn't. The church needs to be colorful. The church needs to welcome and celebrate our differences, our ethnicities, and our heritages. This is God's will and plan. That's why in Revelation it says every tongue and tribe is going to gather around the throne. That's why it says in Revelation God is going to bring all the nations and all the cultures into His kingdom. The church is a place where our ethnic and our cultural differences aren't erased. But they are embraced and they are celebrated. And it is a beautiful thing when the church on earth is a preview of heaven. Do I sound excited? (laughs) So let me show you my favorite church in the New Testament, the church at Antioch. That's the first church that crossed racial lines, the very first one. It says, verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Recently, I was with a minister friend in the Dallas area. And he was telling me about how he found a directory of his church from years back. That had on the back the list of all the Negro and Spanish congregations in Dallas because they wanted to be magnanimous if a person of a different color attended they wanted to be able to show them or tell them where they ought to go to church instead they didn't have two churches listed in the yellow pages in Antioch they just had one they saw that when the cross is lifted up those racial lines and walls come down and the community could not ignore what they were seeing because they had never seen such a thing before that's why did you notice it said in verse 21 that a great number of people believe and turn to the lord and then one paragraph later verse 24 it says again a great number of people were brought to the lord they couldn't stop baptizing people in antioch and they had baptism weekend and then so many people wanted to get saved they had to turn around a month later and have another one Because the church church was giving witness to the world of something it had never seen. See, the church in Antioch modeled the truth that people are one to Christ when disciples are one in Christ. We must not limit the gospel to personal salvation. Jesus' prayer was for the unlimited reconciliation of everyone 
that calls themselves his follower. If you knew you were dying tomorrow, what would you pray about? It'd be important, wouldn't it? Here's what Jesus prayed about. Verse 23 of John 17. May they, his disciples, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus says the world will recognize his identity when they recognize our unity. And if we're going to wear his name, we cannot limit that prayer. I don't think it was a coincidence. The scripture says, verse 26, it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And so I remember standing in front of that bulletin board in my church with all those pictures on the wall. And I stood next to a woman. She was a matriarch, a leading figure in our church. And I didn't have to wonder what she was thinking because she said it out loud. I wish they wouldn't put those pictures on the wall. I just don't like the idea of all those. And she used the N-word. Being in heaven with me. And I was a boy, but I remember thinking, Lady, you got nothing to worry about. (laughs) And sometime later, I got to preach my very first sermon. It was a terrible sermon. It had six points. And the third point was racism. And I called it sin. And there was an emergency elders meeting. (laughs) And a week later, I was informed that I would not be allowed to preach at my church again. A few years later, the church where I was baptized and grew up and preached my first sermon closed. And some will say, well, I guess everyone moved away or maybe the economy was bad. No, it closed because Jesus took the candlestick away. Because if you are not going to pursue his mission, you don't get to wear his name. They were called Christians at Antioch. Now, I fully expect to this point everyone's nodding their head and I'm getting a few amens. Because that's what always happens when you preach a sermon like this. Here's the problem. Most of us have stopped at, well, I'm not adding to the problem. Most of us think we're not racist because I don't use that word. And you're right. It's been over 20 years since I've had one conversation with a member of this church that I thought was a blatant racist. But is that where Jesus set the bar? Just don't make it worse. Or does Jesus want us as his followers to start doing something to make it better? Because when I look at what's going on in our nation right now, somebody needs to do something to make it better. I think it should start with us. And so I'm going to give you three suggestions of what we can do 
that I think will make it better. And it comes right out of the text. Here's the first one. We need to listen to someone else's story. Change began in Acts 10 and 11. Because Peter listened to Cornelius' story. And because the church listened to Peter's story. And the problem today is we're not doing enough listening and we're doing way too much scrolling. And we're deciding what we think about issues based on the latest post on Facebook. And by the way, do you know on social media you get cyber followed? And they notice the links you click on and they make sure tomorrow that you get two more. So that you can just continue to perpetuate what you have already decided you believe. And that's why sitting at a table can be so powerful. Many of you saw this picture a month or so ago. Some football players from Florida State went to a local school. And one of their best players, a wide receiver named Travis Rudolph, saw a boy sitting all by himself. He did not know that Bo Pesky usually sits all by himself because he has autism. And Travis just went and befriended him. Someone took a picture, sent it to Bo's mom. She put it on Facebook and it went viral. And Bo doesn't sit by himself anymore. He's become one of the more popular kids in school. Powerful things happen at tables. I have a friend. He's a black pastor. His father was very active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He has a certain bent of thought on these matters. But he married a white woman. And two years ago at Thanksgiving, they went to her family's house. They all gathered around the table, including a member of her family, who's a police officer, who sat at Thanksgiving meal with his bulletproof vest on because he had to go to duty suddenly after he finished eating. And as he stood up to leave, his wife came up to him and kissed him and said, You make sure you come home to me. And my friend, the black pastor, thought, you know, my wife kisses me goodbye every morning, too. But she never wonders, will I come home? And that one day at that one table gave him a new story and a new perspective. So in the last several months since the shootings in Dallas, I've been intentional. And I've had many meals and conversations, especially with African-American pastors. And I've just said, tell me your story. What's it like for you in our culture to be a black man who wants to follow Jesus? If I told you some of the stories I heard, you would start to cry. You see, tell me more is a good place to start. Because the Bible says we should carry each other's burdens. And one way you carry someone's burden is you listen to it and legitimize it. Instead of saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not what it's like anymore. You listen to the story. And you own it. And I'm just asking, as a follower of Jesus, whose story do you need to hear? And will you decide in advance... If you ask someone for their story that you will listen non-defensively. Instead, here's what I suggest. Lead with grace instead of judgment. I'm glad Barnabas went to the first church across racial lines. He was a good man. 
That church could have split if he had showed up with a perspective limited by bias and by tradition. But he didn't arrive with his mind made up. The Bible clearly says he came and he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He came to that church looking for what was right, not what was wrong. How would it help if we started looking at people different from us for what God is doing among them instead of what's wrong about them? I thought former President Bush put it brilliantly at the recent memorial for the Dallas police officers when he said, Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And if you could only see God at work among people that look like you, think like you, vote like you, You're probably not worshiping God. You're probably worshiping you. The next time you meet Cornelius, be a Barnabas. Lead with grace instead of judgment. But here's the hardest step. That means look for ways to make a statement. Baseball historians know Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. And it was not easy. And every ballpark he went to his rookie year, including his own in Brooklyn, he was jeered. Faced catcalls and racial epithets. Early in the season in Brooklyn, he committed an error. And the crowd started with the name calling and the slurring. And Pee Wee Reese, their popular all-star shortstop, Walked across the baseball diamond, put his arm around Jackie Robinson, stood there and just stared at the crowd until they went silent. He made a statement. And Jackie Robinson said that arm saved his career. He knew what he was doing. Peter knew what he was doing. Barnabas knew what he was doing. They knew they were making statements and things couldn't be the same again. Reconciliation is limited by an unwillingness to advocate for somebody else. Sometimes it takes words. Sometimes it takes actions. It almost always involves risk and sacrifice. Let me give you an example of what it looks like right out of the Bible. So at the end of chapter 11, some prophets, including Agabus, say a famine is going to come all over the Roman Empire. It's coming. Now look how that church responded. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Catch the significance of that. Instead of saying, hey, we better wait and see how bad the famine's going to be here. They think it's going to be worse there. Our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have lost their jobs. They've been kicked out of synagogues. Widows have been taken off the roads because they've named Yeshua as Messiah. Let's help them. So it says they gave as much as they could. And they did this in trusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. They were making an intentional statement. And when that relief showed up, it did more to break down racial walls than a thousand sermons could have done. Because when we're right with God, we don't stop at just not doing wrong to other people. We find ways to do right by them. 
especially when they've been wronged. So, Taylor Walling was doing a series last July. I was on my study break, and the tragic shootings in Dallas took place, and I felt compelled to make a statement, and you saw a video that I prepared. And in that video, I said loud and clear, Black Lives Matter. As you would expect, I caught some flack, not from anyone in my church that I know of, but from people across the country. So let me be very clear about that. I believe we're being sold in this country a false narrative that you have to choose a team, either Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. I reject that narrative. I think it's a lie, and I don't believe it. I don't believe that the answer, though, is to say, well, all lives matter. And here's why. If your house is on fire, and you call the fire department and say, please come put out this fire, and the fire department says, well, you know, all houses matter. Well, of course they do, but right now, my house is in need of attention. This was how Jesus operated in the world. He would specifically say and do things to make the point, children's lives matter in a culture that said they didn't. That women's lives matter. That Samaritan lives matter. That lepers' lives matter. He didn't let his love for all lives stop him from specifically being a voice for those lives whose voice wasn't getting heard. And I did hear across the nation from black pastors that I don't even know who said, you have no idea what it meant to our community. That a white pastor from a well-known influential church would stand up and make a statement and stand with us. And they're right. I don't have an idea. But I need to start understanding better. We all do. Because as Dr. King said, in the end, it's not the words of our enemies that we remember. It is the silence of our friends. And so I'm asking you as a follower of Jesus. Where has God put you that you could lever, leverage your influence and your platform to dismantle injustice? Are you the popular kid at school? Maybe you could make a statement and go sit with the kid that needs more friends at lunch. Are you a person of color? Maybe you could make a statement to your kids the next time you're at a restaurant and walk across the room and pay for the meal of a police officer. And does your skin look like mine? If you pray to God, I promise He will open doors for you to leverage your influence. To make statements. And speak for those. Who aren't getting heard. Let me give you an example of what that might look like. We know him as Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers was an ordained minister. I don't know if you knew that. 
And he hired a man named Francis Collins to be the first African-American to appear regularly on a television show for children. Officer Collins. And in 1969, Mr. Rogers is on the sidewalk. It's a hot day. And he puts his feet in a pool of cool water. And Officer Clemens walks up. And is caught totally off guard as Mr. Rogers says, Officer Clemens, take off your shoes. And put your feet in the pool with me. And Officer Clemens couldn't believe what he was hearing. You are on national TV going to show my black skin in the same pool of water with your white skin? And he joined Mr. Rogers. And then when they were through, Mr. Rogers took a towel and dried Officer Clemens' feet. And the show wrapped up and Mr. Rogers said what he often said. You make every day a special day just by being you, and I like you just the way you are. But that day, Fred Rogers didn't look at the camera. He looked at Francis Clemens. And when the taping was over, Francis walked up and said, Fred, you were talking to me, weren't you? And Fred Rogers said, I've been talking to you for years, but today you heard me. I just believe as disciples of Jesus, there could be so many opportunities for us to be heard if we have the courage to be heard. I want to live in a world where no one has to worry if they are unarmed and their hands are in the air that they might get shot. I want to live in a world Where you don't have to wonder if the color of your skin is going to affect the quality of your education or your chance to get a job or a loan for a home. I want to live in a world where if you have the courage to put on a badge, you are treated with respect and esteem. But if you dishonor that badge, you're held accountable. I want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where every single person created by God is treated with value and dignity. White life, black life, brown life, immigrant life, refugee life, unborn life. I want my kids and my grandkids to inherit that world. I want my grandkids to tell their grandkids it's better than it used to be. And when their grandkids ask why, my grandkids say it. Because the Christians decided to make a difference. And I think if Jesus spoke to His church right now, He would say reconciliation starts here. Forgiveness starts here. And then I think Jesus would say, Try. Please bow your heads. So God, I, I pray that my words have been true and that people have heard my heart, not just my words. And I pray that you would give to all who hear this message a greater desire to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For Jesus' sake. And in Jesus' name, amen.